Speaking of the, the kingdom that we've been singing of, I, I want to look to the kingdom and have you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to pray for us for a moment while you find that text. Our Father, we come to you this morning in awe of the fact that we who are sinners have been counted worthy only by the, sake of, by, by the, the work of Christ. We've been counted worthy to be part of a kingdom that literally will go forever. And, and we really can't conceptualize that. We, we are so mortal. We are so bound to this world. We're so bound to the, the constant cycle of birth and death. And we're, we marvel when somebody lives to be 80 or 90 or 100. And so it, the, the concept of an eternal kingdom is really beyond our grasp. But by faith, we read of it, we believe it, we sing of it, we speak to one another of it, we encourage one another. And so I pray that this morning as we continue looking at how Christ would have us to pray, I pray that our look forward, our look up, would be an inspiration to our hearts and a motivation to godly kingdom living. And We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So I'm continuing in our series that I called How to Pray in Power, and we we started early in Matthew 6. Today I'd like to talk to you about the power of anticipation. The power of anticipation. Even in our normal earthly lives, you know this, there's tremendous power in anticipation. For example, for all of us as, as men, the males in the room, if you wake up on a Monday... And what you have to look forward to is a job that pays your bills, but isn't really what you want to do that day. Waking up, getting up requires discipline. It requires obedience to the Lord. It requires a God-pleasing attitude. But if on a Monday, that's the first day of a two-week road trip with your family where you're in shorts and flip-flops and eating wherever you want and whatever you want, there's a whole different anticipation to that, isn't there? We understand that. The power of anticipation gives you a different frame of mind. And for you ladies, you're the master at harnessing the power of anticipation. You're so good at the power of anticipation that for you, planning something that is good is as good as actually getting to the event itself. That's anticipating. The anticipation and the eagerness drives you and motivates you. When you ladies have meetings about an event that we're going to do at the church, you take as long to do the planning as we do the event. Guys get together for six minutes and say, we got food? All right, meeting adjourned. And that's it. You've harnessed the power of anticipation. We, we all understand this. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He, he harnesses this for us in prayer. We're progressing here through the disciples' prayer, this model or outline structure of a prayer, which is God-honoring. And Jesus gives us a way to pray which is filled with anticipation. A way to pray which takes you out of yourself and into a more glorious age to come, something that's yet to be. It's a way to pray which allows you to participate in the kingdom plan of God which goes back to the ages past and forward to the age to come. This is a way to pray that connects you personally and meaningfully with all the saints of bygone years who have prayed the same prayers and all the saints who will experience this answer to prayer altogether. Here is the power of anticipation. Matthew 6, 10, in the middle of the disciples' prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This verse is spoken artistically, it's spoken poetically, in somewhat of a similar pattern to Hebrew parallelism, Jesus is giving a type of parallelism that says the same thing twice, but the second statement gives more information. Some theologians call this stair-step parallelism. The first part of the request is general. Your kingdom come. And then the second part of the request is a restatement, but with some explanation. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That when the kingdom of God comes, his will will reign over the earth. So we're going to spend most of our time on the first part because the second part is fairly self-explanatory by the time we get there. Now to broaden back and to step back just a minute, we go back to the first request, hallowed be your name. And we saw last time 
that hallowed or holy, this isn't an adjective. This isn't a descriptor of God. This isn't a description of God. It's a request. It's a verbal request that we said is, is basically saying, may your name, may your reputation be made holy. The prayer begins with the first request that the name and the reputation of God be made holy among men. And we said that we request for God to be made holy in our lives and made known as holy in the world as a whole. But the moment you pray that, the moment you pray for the name and the reputation of the Lord to be holy in the world, it almost sounds ridiculous to pray that because all you have to do is look around you and see that the name of God is not holy in the world. And and so when you pray this, it's reasonable to ask questions. Why don't people bow down to the holy name of God? Why doesn't every nation organize itself around the law of God? Why doesn't every person humble himself before God and spend their lives in lives of worship? Why isn't the adoration of God Almighty the focus of all of humanity? And the answer is because there's another king ruling the earth at the moment. The prince of the power of the air, the king of this world, Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. But God has revealed since the dawn of time that his kingdom will triumph. John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. So what is exactly Jesus referring to when he gives us the admonition here, your kingdom come? Now many immediately spiritualize this to may your spiritual kingdom come. And certainly that element is included, but in the overall context of Matthew, the kingdom of God is much more specific than that. And so before we can get to the actual prayer request itself, we need to be reminded what the gospel of Matthew teaches about the kingdom so we know precisely what Jesus is asking us to pray. Now this is a bit of review from the very first message in Matthew, but that was one year ago tomorrow, so I'm confident that you're not going to roll your eyes at this. I counted, I've preached 95 messages since then. So if you go, oh, I've heard this already, you have the best memory in the world. So let me go back and review this for you so you understand what the kingdom is because this is actually a huge theological debate and I want to make this uh, accessible to all of us. I want to give you seven key facts about the kingdom of God as presented in Matthew so that you know what you're asking for. First of all, the kingdom is coming soon. That's the first key fact. The kingdom is coming soon. In Matthew 3, 2, Matthew records the main message of John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that Jesus preached. The same message he commissioned his disciples to preach. There's the implication of a sense of urgency, of immediacy. That time is running out. And you might say, well, it's been 2,000 years. How could Jesus say time is running out? Remember, he gave a genuine offer of the kingdom at that moment. Israel could have come to him and bowed down to him and said, you are our king. And theoretically, the kingdom could have come. And so he gives that sense of urgency. But there's always been a sense of urgency because we have no idea when this kingdom is going to come. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. Here's a second key fact. The kingdom is from heaven. The kingdom is from heaven. This theme is so frequent, it's impossible to miss. 15 of the 28 chapters in Matthew reference the kingdom of heaven. Now, some would try to say there's something different about the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. That's kind of a false dichotomy. It just simply means that this is not a kingdom made by men. It's not a kingdom made in the fashion of men by the will of men. It's a kingdom that originates in heaven, is ruled from heaven, and will carry out the purposes of heaven. So it's the kingdom which we might say belongs to heaven. Here's a third key fact. The kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. All four times this term is used to the kingdom, it's used by Jesus. This is his term. Jesus gives proof that the kingdom of God is being offered to Israel at this time by his demonstration of power in casting out demons by the Spirit of God. He says in Matthew 28, in 12, 28 rather, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That the kingdom of God is here if you'll receive it. He gives a statement about the difficulty of a rich man entering the kingdom of God. In chapter 19, he decrees that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before the self-righteous ever will. 
In chapter 21, he decrees by his sovereign power and authority who will not be part of the kingdom in Matthew 21. The fact that the kingdom is the kingdom of God is vital because it shows that Jesus is the king of this kingdom and it affirms for the readers of Matthew his dual nature as God and man. That he is a human king who is divine. There's a fourth important fact. The kingdom is spiritual and physical. The kingdom is spiritual and physical. The Sermon on the Mount shows the clear spiritual nature of the kingdom. Jesus teaches about the internal attitudes of the kingdom citizen. He is poor in spirit. He is humble. He's seeking righteousness and so forth. These are internal attitudes that characterize the regenerate nature of the subject of the kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount really stands as a kingdom manifesto. This is new covenant law. This is what kingdom citizens do. It's the outworking of what the new covenant will bring. He teaches clearly that this kingdom will be inhabited by those who are made righteous. That's an internal spiritual quality. But the kingdom is also physical in nature, and you can't just separate those two arbitrarily. In Matthew 22, Jesus affirms the physical resurrection of all who will receive him as Lord, as Savior, and as King, and it paves the way for the eventuality of his own resurrection in Matthew 27, 28. It's a fifth key fact. The kingdom will be a purified kingdom. The kingdom will be a purified kingdom. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives numerous parables to demonstrate this purification. He says the lawless are thrown into the furnace of fire. The bad fish are thrown away. The wicked are separated from the righteous. They're thrown into the lake of fire, the place of weeping, the gnashing of teeth. And so to be part of the kingdom, you must be purified. You must believe the gospel. You must humbly receive Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sins, you must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What does that tell us? Not everyone will be in the kingdom. You must be qualified. You must be purified. And that happens through the gospel. Here's a sixth key fact. The kingdom is the prophesied kingdom of the Old Testament. That is so important. The kingdom is the prophesied kingdom of the Old Testament. The kingdom spoken of in Matthew's gospel is not a revamped version that now centers solely on the church with no more program for national Israel. The Old Testament promises of a kingdom are not now spiritualized to mean just simply spiritual truths in the kingdom. No, God made Abraham some very specific promises. He promised him that kings would come from him. God promised David that one king would come from him and this king would reign forever and ever. And God promised both of them that this king would rule in the land. And by the way, Matthew 1.1 identifies Jesus first as the son of David and second as the son of Abraham. Why? Because the important fact about Jesus in Matthew is that he is the son of a king. That he is the king. The kingdom is exactly the same kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. It didn't change. The plan hasn't been altered. Jesus said that any scribe, an expert in the Old Testament law, any scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom has brought out treasure that's both new and old, meaning they understand the kingdom from the Old Testament and the New Testament as being one kingdom. And that's a treasure to them. The kingdom will find ultimate fulfillment in the literal earthly reign of King Jesus on the throne of David as predicted by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, ruling over Israel and all the nations, as predicted in Zechariah. And if you come for our Sunday nights on our Millennium Series, you see it's pretty much predicted all over the Old Testament. But to our point this morning, there's one more important fact about the kingdom. The seventh one is the kingdom has not yet come. The kingdom has not yet come. Jesus presented himself to Israel as her king, but his own people rejected him and crucified him. So that from our vantage point, this delayed the coming of the physical aspect of the kingdom. The crucifixion and the resurrection of the king paid the penalty of sin who would all, for all who would repent and desire to become part of the kingdom. And the spiritual transformation of turning subjects of Satan 
in the subjects of the king, that continues, but the world still waits for the complete physical rule of the king in Israel and over the nations. And and those who don't grasp this fact uh, waste a lot of time on silly things like thinking that an election next year is going to make any difference whatsoever. And we don't waste time on that. Jesus continues to be the king of Israel. He continues to be the Messiah. And he awaits the proper time to establish himself eternally as the king in residence. And it really becomes a silly notion to say, well, the kingdom is now. Ask any Jew who has come to faith in Christ what they think about the kingdom being now. And they'll say, what? Well, where's the king? That's a simple question. If the kingdom is now, where is the king? So that's our foundation. Now you can have a little more understanding of what it means to pray your kingdom come. What it means to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then I'd like to spend just a bit of time at the end explaining what this means for your heart, what it means for your prayer life. This is not merely a study in eschatology, a study of the end times. This is a study of what your heart is doing each and every day, where your focus in prayer is. So what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Now, we've already established a couple of messages ago that God decrees all things in His sovereign plan. But prayer is one of His ordained means or avenues by which that decree comes about. So it's not that we're actually changing the timing or changing the nature or changing the plan of God, changing the coming of the kingdom by our prayers, but our prayers are, in fact, the means by which God will bring about His kingdom on the earth. That's a tremendous thought. That when Jesus returns, that's in answer to you praying. So based on our understanding that we have now of what the kingdom of God is, let me suggest four ways to pray, your kingdom come. The first way to pray, your kingdom come, is pray for the success of the gospel. Pray for the success of the gospel. Praying for the success of the gospel means praying for God to gather kingdom citizens into the family. It means praying the declaration of Christ when he said, I will build my church in Matthew 16. It also means, practically speaking, being part of the work of the gospel at some level. I've noticed a correlation and I've I've been around the ministry for a while now. And sometimes I get to speak to a church member or somebody maybe who's attending who hasn't really involved himself at any level in the work of the church, in the work of the ministry. And on occasion, I've asked this question. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for the lost? And you know, almost invariably, the one who's not doing anything for the cause of Christ, neither is he praying for the lost. Because the two go together. Praying for the success of the gospel motivates your heart to be part of the success of the gospel. Using your spiritual gifts in the church, working for the sake of the kingdom, By the way, praying for the success of the gospel, it has a wonderful sanctifying effect because it puts your own little problems in perspective. It really does. This past Friday afternoon, we had the privilege of celebrating the life of our brother, Robert Amon, who went home to be with the Lord. Darren and I were talking earlier this morning and saying it was one one of the best memorials we've ever been to, we've ever witnessed Only a couple of his family members attend here right now, but all five of his children were able to give testimony to their dad. And they all said the same thing. They all said he was a man who loved the Lord Jesus, who would tell anybody about the Lord Jesus, who led his family with the gospel. He was saved for 53 years and he proclaimed the gospel to anyone who would sit still long enough to listen. Several of us got a chance to visit with him in the last days of his life. And, and in one particular visit I got to have with him, he was in a convalescent home while his family had to be away to take care of some business. And I asked him if he needed anything. And he, he, he said, I just need tracts because there's nurses and doctors here. And I need pamphlets to hand out. And would you, would you help me get over to my roommate over here? I want to talk to him about Christ. That was his concern. After Friday, Darren and I were talking, we agreed that everyone in our church who is tempted to complain about little problems or challenges needs to hear those testimonies, and it's on the Grace Bible Church YouTube channel, by the way. Listen, a life well lived for the Lord has a central theme of the gospel. That is a life well lived. 
a constant concern that the gospel be spread to the lost. I'm concerned about a sickened, a, a, a weak version of Christianity that's primarily concerned about my family, my marriage, my life, my goals, my idols that I feel I need to worship. If you're the one consumed with your own difficulties, if you're eager to believe that you can have joy as soon as your last problem is solved, I want to challenge you to pray for the lost, both specifically, specific people, and generally every day for the next several months, and see if your own difficulties don't begin to evaporate and come sharper into a right perspective. Or if I can put it this way, how about you attend your own funeral in your mind? And in your mind's eye, Imagine what will be said of you. Will it be genuinely said, this man, this woman lived out a focus on being, uh, having a yearning to see the lost come to faith in Christ? Will that be your testimony? It is very useful to attend your own funeral before it's time. The Apostle Paul believed that prayer was the key to reaching the lost. Greatest evangelist in the history of the church. And yet he said in Colossians 4, 3, Pray for us that God will open the door, open to us a door for the word so that I may speak the mystery of Christ. He said to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. The kingdom will be filled with citizens who were brought to faith in Christ during this age. And that's our duty Our duty is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to bring the elect to the cross. And listen, some people will say, well, I'm I'm intimidated by evangelism. I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm talking about prayer. Let me tell you what evangelism is. It is prayerfully connecting the elect with the gospel. And maybe you don't have as many opportunities to do that, but you can pray. You can pray. Years ago, I coined a term I called chicken evangelism. The chicken evangelism is, is praying that the Lord would bring the right people across my path. Maybe I can't knock on their doors, but maybe they'll knock on mine. But that starts in prayer. And it's been my experience as a pastor that those who don't pray for the success of the gospel don't contribute to the success of the gospel. That's how you pray your kingdom come. Here's a second way to pray your kingdom come. Pray for vindication against the wicked. Pray for vindication against the wicked. And now you might say, that doesn't sound very gracious. That sounds like the opposite of the first way. But if you understand that the kingdom of God on the earth will be inaugurated by the judgment of God toward the earth, or if you care about the holiness and the fame and the reputation of God's righteousness, then you should care for vindication. You should care about this. The Psalms are filled with prayers of the godly for God to be vindicated and God to be honored. And I think one of the most powerful is Psalm 94. And it's, it's worth taking some time to turn there. Turn with me to Psalm 94. And Psalm 94 records a time in Israel's history when Israel is, is at the mercy of multiple foreign nations. And yes, Israel got themselves in that problem. They are being disciplined by the Lord. And yet... God's people are praying for help, praying for vindication. And the psalmist engages with God on the subject of the vindication of God. There's actually decent evidence that the the author of Psalm 94 is the prophet and judge Samuel. And Samuel lived in a day when Israel was surrounded by her enemies and just constantly uh, at, at war with them. And so the author, first of all, right up front, declares his intentions and desires in this prayer. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Be lifted up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. What a picture. Portraying God as shining in vengeance. A brilliant picture, a light of vindication. And the psalmist prays, render recompense to the proud. It means pay to them what is owed to them. For their deeds of pride and evil. And then the psalmist adds a note of urgency. In verse 3. How long shall the wicked, O Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? This is consistent with the prayer of the righteous. 
In Revelation 6.10, the martyrs of the, great com- the coming great tribulation cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you might say, that, well, that sounds cruel. That sounds mean-spirited to pray for God to vindicate and God to punish. Well, the psalmist gives reasons. He proves his case. Verses 4 through 7, he gives the reasons that God should avenge. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All workers of iniquity vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your inheritance. They slay the widow and the sojourner and murder the orphans. They have said, Yah does not see, nor does the God of Jacob discern. So what are the reasons? The reasons to pray for vindication, the arrogant words of the wicked, they vaunt themselves. It means to boast about themselves, to make themselves look good, uh, vaunting. They show contempt and hatred for God's people. They're crushing God's people. They're merciless to the most helpless, the widow, the sojourner, the orphan. And they have no sense of being accountable to God. They, they unwisely say, God isn't seeing this. And now the psalmist begins to taunt these resistant people, these people who are so anti-God, those who say that God doesn't see, God doesn't judge. And this taunt begins in verse 8. Discern, you senseless among the people, and when will you have insight, you fools? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, God knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. This is called taunting the vaunting. Now, after addressing the wicked and taunting them before God, the psalmist addresses the faithful, the righteous, the genuine worshipers of Yahweh, and he gives encouragement in verse 12. Oh, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yah. And whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him calm from the days of calamity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For Yahweh will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will arise for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against workers of iniquity? He says that the righteous should have calm because the the unrighteous will be fully judged in God's time. God will never abandon them. And then he gives us, he gives the reader hope that God provides for everything that we need while we're waiting for the vengeance of God to happen. God provides care. Verse 17, if Yahweh had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. God provides covenant love. In verse 18, if I should say my foot has stumbled, your loving kindness, this is said, covenant love, O Yahweh, will build me up, will hold me up rather. God provides consolation. Verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. And to our point, God provides certainty for future vindication. Verse 20, can the throne of destruction be allied with you, one which forms trouble by statute? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But Yahweh has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their iniquity upon them and will destroy them in their evil. Yahweh, our God, will destroy them. So what does God provide while you're waiting for vindication, praying for vindication, care, covenant love, consolation, certainty? All in the context of praying for God's vindication. And frankly, praying for vindication against the wicked is what helps you make it through the daily news cycle. Our own government trying to make it illegal to protect your children from wicked transgender ideology. That which is evil being called good, that which is good being called evil. The church of Jesus Christ continually under assault from the outside by evil spiritual influences and false doctrine. The church of Jesus Christ continually under uh, assault from the inside by disobedient troublemakers, false believers, liars, slanderers, unfaithful shepherds stinking up the pulpits of the church. But what gives you strength and hope? Oh, Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, 
Be lifted up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? You know what Peter says is your duty? He says your duty is to hurry along the judgment of God. Did you know that? He says in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? How do you hasten the coming judgment of God? By praying for vindication. That's how you hasten it. The first way to pray your kingdom come, pray for the success of the gospel. Second, pray for vindication against the wicked. Third, Pray for the rapture of the church. Pray for the rapture of the church. And we have to go to 1 Thessalonians 4, really our classic passage on this. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, just briefly so we can be reminded of this great truth. And there's a a longer section that addresses this. I just want to look at a few verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 15 And on the surface, it's going to seem a little bit far-fetched. Millions of people disappearing off the earth all at once. Sounds like aliens and conspiracy theories to me, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, the catching away of the church prior to the raining down of God's wrath, called in Scripture the day of God or the day of the Lord. Then the coming of Christ fully to His earth with His saints in a completely separate event seven years later as described in Revelation 19. The resurrection of Christians who have died and the catching away of Christians who are still alive happens at the same moment. It's a single event. Some have called it the resurrection rapture event. It happens all at the same time. And some have said, and there isn't much basis to this, well, I don't believe in the rapture because the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, the word trinity isn't in the Bible either, and and we understand that. But the word rapture is just a useful word to describe the the phenomena. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, the, the word here, caught up, harpazo, just means to be taken, snatched up, seized. It's a future form of the verb. It means it hasn't happened yet. It's used 14 times in the New Testament and it's translated numerous times like take by force, snatch away. It's used of the Spirit of the Lord carrying Philip away in Acts 8. Paul used it to describe uh, as being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. And in fact, it's used of Christ being caught up to God in Revelation 12. So there's no wiggle room for this word at all. It's sudden and the person being caught up has no control over this. It just happens. In fact, it's a passive verb, meaning someone else does it to you. Hey, you don't have to go to the gym. Yeah, I got to get those legs for that one final jump, you know. No, God does it. And the English translation of the Latin translation of harpazo gives us rapture. So verse 17 is not difficult to understand if you don't come at it with preconceived notions of disbelief. Christians who are alive at the time of the resurrection are caught up, taken, snatched away. And just in case anyone thinks this is just a a gathering together of Christians on the earth, that it's kind of symbolic, Paul's very clear that that we who are caught up together are resurrected uh, with the resurrected are in the clouds. There's no lack of clarity to that has the obvious meaning of in the sky. He even says we meet the Lord in the air. And from that moment on, isn't this a precious truth? We shall always be with the Lord, that wherever Christ is, we will always be forever. We get other indications from Scripture. Revelation 3.10, Jesus promises 
using the church at Philadelphia as an example, as a, as a microcosm. He promises he'll keep the entire church from the time of the worldwide tribulation. The time of the great tribulation is a time of the pouring out of the wrath of God on the earth. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10, it says, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. This isn't just speaking us of keeping from wrath in general, but the context of chapter 5 is the wrath of God, judgment day. Will be kept from that. You won't be here on judgment day. As a matter of fact, there was fear among the Thessalonian believers that the judgment of God was coming or it had already come to the earth. And this is very understandable. They're under horrible persecution from the Roman Empire at this at this time. And it's it's just growing. But Paul said, Don't worry, the judgment of God hasn't come. It can't have come, he says, because you're still here. In 2 Thessalonians 1, or 2, rather. Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says then after that that the day of the Lord can't come until Antichrist appears. And Paul proceeds to talk about how terrible life on earth is going to be when Antichrist appears. He says nothing to them by the way of warning them to get ready to endure Antichrist. 1 Corinthians 15 gives a similar description of the rapture resurrection event. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, Paul says this is a mystery. A biblical mystery is something that is new information, new revelation. There is no Old Testament prophecy of a rapture. Now, there's a couple of examples. Guys named Enoch and Elijah raptured. But there was a single rapture. But there's no, there's no parallel to this in Jewish literature written at the same time as the New Testament. There wasn't an understanding of this. It was a mystery. Why is this? Because the rapture specifically concerns the church. And the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. Now, there's a few hints of a Gentile people of God. But you can't, from the Old Testament alone, put together a doctrine of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 gives more detail about what happens to the raptured saint. We shall be changed. The corruptible puts on incorruptible. The mortal puts on immortality. John said it this way in 1 John 3, 2. When he appears, we shall be like him. And he gives the reason. Because we shall see him as he is. That when you see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, you will become like the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. That's the agent of change. Is God himself in the Son. Paul says it like this in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. What is it that Christians are told to wait for? What are we told to wait for? Titus 2.13 says we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says that we're eagerly waiting the revelation, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to point this out and this is very significant. Jesus said that in this life we will have trials, we will have tribulations, but never once in the entire New Testament is the Christian warned to grit our teeth and get ready for the day of judgment. We're never once told that. If we don't hold to a rapture, that means that the great tribulation must come before Christ does. And now the final generation of the church will endure the wrath of God. We won't endure the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. If there's no rapture, you would think that out of the 7,957 verses of the New Testament, we get one that says, get ready to endure the pouring out of the wrath of God on the earth. Instead, what do we get in 1 Thessalonians 4.18? Comfort one another with these words. 
Wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of Christ. Now, in my flesh, I wish there were some prophetic indicators of the rapture that we could say that as soon as a Democrat president is elected eight times in a row, the rapture's on its way. We'd be really close now, right? But there's not. We're just told to wait. We're told to wait. You know, my dad was not a sophisticated theologian. He wasn't a Bible scholar, but he did pray for the rapture. And he genuinely believed that the rapture would happen in his lifetime. He longed for it. I mean, he spoke about it like it's a fact. You know, when I'm raptured, I guess I won't need this. Do you want this? And I, well, hopefully I'll be raptured too if you're gone too. <laughs> he talked about it like it was a foregone conclusion. And I imagine that at the moment of his death, and he died instantly in a car accident in 2005, I imagine when he appeared before the Lord, he said, well, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but I'm here. And you might say, that's kind of silly to believe I'm going to be part of the rapture. Paul did. Paul believed it. He used a personal pronoun in the plural, first person. We who were alive, who were left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He kept that glimmer of hope that he was going to be part. And so should we. Let me ask you a question. If you're praying for the rapture, genuinely being used of God to beseech God for this glorious event, isn't it kind of difficult to avoid looking up? You may bow your head in prayer, but when I'm praying about the rapture, I like to look up. Pray for the success of the gospel. Pray for vindication against the wicked. Pray for the rapture of the church. Fourth way, pray for the coming of Christ. Pray for the coming of Christ. The rapture of the church happens. The church will meet the Lord in the air. The church is taken to what Jesus called in John 14, my father's house, and the clock begins to tick. Seven years and counting down. Great tribulation on the earth. The apostle Paul didn't believe that the kingdom was now. He was in full agreement with praying, future tense, your kingdom come. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are, these are, this is a future tense verb, to not inherit. It's something yet to happen. Galatians 5, 21, that those who practice a list of sins he's given will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a future inheritance. Ephesians 5, 5, that the, the sexually immoral, the impure, the greedy, the idolatry, idolater, will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who are in Christ will have an inheritance. The context is future. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 Walk in the manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Kingdom and glory are paired together. Something that happened simultaneously. It hasn't happened yet. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the, his appearing and his kingdom. The appearing of Christ is associated with his kingdom. They haven't happened yet. Second Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. Paul speaks of the end of his life, the consummation of his salvation, as the kingdom, its future. I found really only one passage where Paul speaks of the kingdom as a present reality. He said in Colossians 1.13 that God rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son in His love. Now in context, this is speaking of our redemption, our salvation, forgiveness of sins. And the previous verse says that because of our salvation, we've been qualified to share in something that happens in the future. The inheritance of the kingdom. But I say all this to lead to my favorite particularly beautiful verse in Paul's writing which connects the future kingdom and the king that to pray your kingdom come is to pray may the king come that's the ultimate prayer may the king come in 1 Corinthians 15 I read earlier Paul gives a glorious explanation of the rapture then after that he mocks death oh death where is your victory he gives a glorious doxology, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And right near the end of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes one short phrase 
Not in Greek, but in Aramaic. It's a phrase so familiar to the early church that Paul didn't even translate it for the Greek-speaking reader. This word can be traced to the Aramaic-speaking early church in the Palestine area, to the church in Jerusalem. They all knew this word. It's a word that means our Lord, come. And he says it this way, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Listen to the emphasis in Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22.7, Christ says, Behold, I am coming quickly. 22.10, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22.17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. Do you hear Isaiah 55 I read earlier? The same Savior in Isaiah 55 who says, come to the waters without cost, is saying to come at the very end of the Bible. And in verse 20, he who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. And the very last prayer of the church of Jesus Christ recorded in the Bible is, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come, This is the final prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, there's no need to turn back there, but what about the second half of the request in the disciples' prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just very briefly, we could divide the theological idea of the will of God into two basic categories, the perfect will of God and the preceptive will of God based on precepts. The perfect will of God is sometimes called the decree of God or the the secret will of God. This is God's eternal, unchangeable foreordination, His decree of all things. It reflects His character, which is eternal, which is unchangeable. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. This is the totality of His sovereign will. But under His sovereign will, as the Westminster Confession says, He gives second causes And they are real causes. And one of those second causes is sin. Sin is part of God's overall plan. But he never condones the sin of his creature. He never is the immediate or efficient cause of sin. He has no delight in the existence of sin. But he ordained sin by his decree to accomplish the ultimate goal of bringing glory to himself. Romans 5 explains this. Romans 9 explains this. Sin is never touching God. Sin is always initiated by the sinner And yet it's part of his perfect will. That brings us to the preceptive will of God. The law of God as revealed in Scripture are God's precepts, his commands, his judgments, his warnings, his revealed will for his creatures. And when his creatures obey his preceptive will, they're also obeying his perfect will. And when his creatures disobey his preceptive will, his perfect will is still also being accomplished because God ordained that the creature disobey without being the direct cause of the disobedience. In other words, when the sinner rejects the gospel, it is a true and legitimate rejection. It is a real, actual decision for which the sinner is held responsible. And and yet at the same time, Romans 9 declares, according to the perfect will of God, some are ordained as vessels of mercy and others as vessels of wrath. God forbids mankind from sinning, yet he uses sin to bring the greatest glory to himself, all while taking no pleasure in sin. Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Peter said in Acts 2.23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men. And put him to death. So God's perfect will and his preceptive will are held in attention of sorts. They pull on each other. To deny his perfect will is to deny that God is all knowing, to deny that he's all powerful, that he's totally sovereign. And to deny his preceptive will is to ignore God's holiness, the weightiness of what it means to sin against God. So there's a tension. But in heaven, There's no tension because God's perfect will and preceptive will are one and the same. Everybody in heaven always obeys the Lord. 
And so the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray, the prayer that only can be accomplished when God's kingdom comes, the prayer that God's will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven, that prayer is saying, let your will be done on earth perfectly and preceptively all at the same time. Let this be a world where all do the will of God, where the perfect will of God is always accomplished. And what makes that happen? When the king comes. It's the only thing that will make that happen. The power of anticipation in prayer. Hebrews 9.28, it's almost an oxymoron, but Hebrews 9.28 says, we eagerly wait for Christ. How do you eagerly wait? There's only one way, and that is in prayer. You eagerly wait. This anticipation motivates the heart to seek Christ all the more. You know how Paul defines Christians? Listen to this definition of a Christian. 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, here's his definition of a Christian, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The true Christian loves the appearing of Christ. The true Christian need not be reminded to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as John, representing the whole church, prays, Come, Lord Jesus. Our Father, we come to you now, repeating in our own hearts, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, our ability to enter into that kingdom was purchased for us at great and tremendous cost. Our Father, our ability to be part of that kingdom was given to us by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we come now, Lord, humbly and soberly and seriously to remember the command of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring remembrance to the death that He endured, the suffering of His body, the shedding of His blood, the atonement which He offered to us, the propitiation of our sins, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, our dear Savior, that when the arrows of the wrath of God were flying towards us, He jumped in the way and took them into Himself, into His own body, into His own soul. And so we remember this day the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.